Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you who happen to cross our broadcast for the very first time, is our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that is where you come in. It is your questions on the Bible that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, get online with your questions, any question about the Bible, any question about applying the Bible, perhaps to the challenges of life you're currently facing, how to look at uh, this life in this world through a distinctly biblical lens, especially when it comes to uh, current events and current controversies that could generate maybe even a little more heat than light, even in your own circle of Christian friends. Hey, let's get clarity straight from God's Word on the broadcast today. If you'd like to talk about the events of today or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, hey, let's uh, discuss those issues. We are completely open to that. But our desire here at A Reason for Hope, more than anything else, is to answer the questions that are on your heart heart currently. So uh, jump on in with those questions. Uh, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you'd like to join us online, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like clarification on spelling, you can join us on our live stream. Our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com, and there we will have it spelled out for you in a banner at the bottom of the screen. There you can make use of that at any time for sending us your Bible questions. If you'd like to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is blocking us, so we're going to uh, mention that as often as we can, just so that they can stew in it. But it's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Give us a like or subscribe. You'll be notified when we I, are going I have us live. up on Facebook today, though. Yes, we will, of course, continue to be live streaming, but be aware that they are starting to remove audio if we discuss topics they don't like. And again, just to, uh, I guess, double down on issues that need to be addressed, it was the topic we were discussing, abortion, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and the fact that abortion is a sin. So if you um, have a problem with that, Facebook, <laughs> oh, no, then he said feel, the free, S word. <laughs> yeah, feel free to uh, take it up with our creator, but I am content to answer for what I have said, and I'm sure Peter would say the same. All that being said, though, if you have questions about those topics or any other, note we don't shy away from controversy, just insincerity, and of course, things that aren't questions. So if you want to have us answer your Bible questions, make sure they're about the Bible, sincere and in the form of a question, we'll be happy to deal with them. Now, while your ears are probably still ringing from that, uh, why don't we take a moment to pray before we get into the questions we've set aside for the next hour? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, Father, I thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we have to be able to draw close to you. And uh, Lord, uh, I thank you that uh, we must uh, be over the target if we're catching some flack. Uh, Lord, uh, you say uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, when uh, men speak evil of you or try to shut you down, rejoice and be glad, uh, because great is your reward in heaven. I thank you, Lord 
Lord, that all who are involved with this ministry can uh, encourage one another in knowing that uh, we must be making a difference. And Lord, I pray that you'd lay it on the hearts of those in our audience uh, to reach out, maybe even to uh, more friends or include uh, the broadcast on their uh, Facebook or uh, their uh, YouTube timelines, and uh, let other people know uh, about a reason for hope so they can join on in. Father, I pray that you would use uh, these days we have as we anticipate your return uh, to the fullest extent uh, to be able to share your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth during this time, because uh, your word is ultimately what changes hearts. It not only comforts and encourages and strengthens your people, but uh, it is your word that is shared that actually brings people into a saving relationship with you. So we pray that uh, those scriptures shared literally all around the world today, uh, would make a life-changing difference and that people would come into your kingdom as a result of understanding that you love them, that you sent your son, Father, to die on the cross for their sins, that he rose from the dead in a moment of history, and all they need to do is put their faith and their trust and their confidence in Jesus, and they can pass from death into life. We pray many would make that decision today. Uh, We commit this time to you, and we pray we'd make the most of it in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, there were a few questions I received Uh, believe it or not, outside of a reason for hope, but they were Bible questions, and I thought they might bring up some interesting topics, uh, two of which are, uh, of course, given, but the first I'd actually like to pass on to you because we'll be going into these over the next couple weeks. Sure. The individual had a question regarding the significance of the mystery Babylon symbol in Revelation chapter 16 and 17, sure. and uh, 18 posthumously, if you yeah. catch the reference, yeah. <laughs> but um, her significance in the text, and it if she appears anywhere else outside of the book of Revelation. Uh, Well, uh, Mystery Babylon, as it's portrayed in Revelation chapter 16, and uh, most uh, directly uh, illuminated for us in Revelation chapter 17, uh, certainly uh, is a uh, a composite, if you will, of a lot of what the Bible has to say about wickedness. There's no doubt about it. But uh, Babylon uh, comes on the scene very early in uh, the uh, scriptural record. Uh, We are told that after the flood of Noah, uh, the first organized rebellion against God, God telling people to uh, scatter across the earth uh, to uh, be fruitful and multiply. Instead, they decided that they were going to keep themselves all under one tent and have one language in direct uh, contradiction to what God uh, intended them to do. Uh, That was uh, what uh, precipitated the scatterings of the people, the scatterings of the languages. And uh, again, That's where Babylon comes on the scene, that very same place we find in the Scripture. Uh, Babylon shows up uh, again in different places that we find in the Word of God. Most notably, it uh, arises as an enemy of uh, especially the southern two tribes of Israel. The northern two tribes pretty much been uh, wiped out by the Assyrians. But Babylon comes on the scene and uh, is a focal point of God's revelation. Believe it or not, King Nebuchadnezzar, who uh, was the uh, most dominant leader of one of the most dominating nations the world has ever seen, received uh, a couple of different visions from God uh, regarding uh, his uh, future and uh, the the role that he was going to play uh, in uh, God's kingdom, at least as far as Babylon was concerned. Not just Babylon, but the successive world-dominating empires that would have a direct hand upon Israel and their future. So it doesn't mention the Aztecs or Genghis Khan or any of these other significant empires, but yeah, it focuses uh, uh, on those that directly... The Ming Dynasty 
or anything like that. Yeah, you know? focus directly on those that influence Israel. That's yeah. key. Yeah, because as we know from uh, Scripture, God has set Israel in the center of the, the world. It was through Israel and God's promises to the founder of Israel, Abraham, that uh, God promised that he would not only reveal himself to the world, but through Israel would send his Messiah. Actually, uh, he would be born into this world as a member of the tribe of Israel. And so very key that we, we, we see and understand that. Uh, so, uh, you know, when it comes to Mystery Babylon, uh, Babylon, again, was a place where idolatry was invented. Uh, the uh, northern or the southern two tribes of Israel had fallen in love uh, with uh, idolatry and the worship of pagan idols. And so uh, God said, all right, if you love idols so much, I'm going to send you to Idol Central for 70 years until you get it out of your system. Out after 400 years, by the way, of second chances and warnings being laid out explicitly from the times of the prophet Isaiah all the way to Jeremiah. Yeah, but uh, again, idolatry is uh, really was perfected, uh, made into an art form in uh, Babylon, and, uh, and so the people of Israel went to Babylon. They spent 70 years there. Uh, the ones who came back to the land never had a problem with idolatry again. They, they had problems with other issues, but not idolatry. And so Babylon, as world empires will do, uh, came and went. Uh, the prophet Daniel uh, foreseeing its destruction, the famous uh, handwriting on the wall incident where Babylon had been weighed in the scales and found wanting, been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so Babylon, as a world power, pretty much has gone off uh, the world screen. However, the influence of Babylon is still being felt today. If you've ever wondered, for instance, why we measure time in 60-second increments instead of, say, some uh, referent of 100. Well, 60 comes from the Babylonian reckoning of time. Uh, a lot of our basic understandings of uh, astronomy and uh, its uh, perversion astrology come from Babylonian practices. In fact, uh, Babylonian paganism has a funny way of uh, working its way through and influencing an awful lot of different religious point of views that are still alive and kicking and doing uh, land office business in our day and age. In fact, uh, we see that in the last days, the end times, and this is where Revelation 17 comes in, that Babylon is going to make a comeback in two forms. Revelation 17 speaks of the rise of a religious Babylon if you will, uh, a uh, Babylon that is uh, a Babylonian-style religious system that I believe is going to be syncretistic, and by that uh, highfalutin word, I mean it's going to be the one thing that all world religions can agree upon, and for a time, even the Antichrist himself, when he comes to power, is going to have to, well, make nice with the uh, powerful uh, people that are running uh, this last day's world religion called Mystery Babylon. Uh, in fact, Mystery Babylon is called uh, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In other words, uh, the uh, idea of Christ's uh, people being his bride is uh, given in sharp contrast the fact that all Babylon is is a religious prostitute, if you will. People, what naturally comes out of her ain't good. Yeah, and people worshiping for what they can get out of it. You know, everything has a price and so on. And, and uh, you know, as we've mentioned many times on the program, uh, if uh, you uh, really want to uh, make an awful lot of money, you can do so in religion. All you have to do is get rid of your ethics. And so uh, Mystery Babylon will be dedicated to that proposition for a time. It will even dominate the Antichrist, but uh, after a while the Antichrist will tire of that. Uh, he will replace Mystery Babylon with uh, the worship of himself 
that the uh, event the Bible refers to as the abomination that causes desolation. That's now, in Daniel chapter 9 and in more detail in chapter 11. And in uh, Matthew chapter 24 as well, and Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us exactly how it's going to go down. The Antichrist is going to go to a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. This is something you can look for on the horizon, or at least uh, movements in this direction. The Jews are going to be able to rebuild their temple on its historic site. And uh, the Antichrist is going to go to that rebuilt temple, take a seat in that temple, and declare himself God to be worshipped. That is the abomination that causes desolation. An abomination is something that is so foul in the eyes of God, it just is intolerable. And uh, uh, desolation means that uh, it uh, renders a place completely empty. A place that was supposed to be a sign of God's presence will be anything but. Uh, and so the Antichrist is going to toss this false religious system away. Then in Revelation 18, uh, we see that there is going to be another uh, version of Babylon. Commercial Babylon is also going to be judged in the last days. In other words, there is going to be one economic hub that is going to cause the entire world's economy uh, to function. It's going to be the straw that stirs the drink. And God is going to judge it in one day. Uh, it's going to cause a huge commercial collapse uh, across the entire world. Uh, the, Among uh, other things. The, uh, I guess we could say commercial Babylon is going to be dedicated to that uh, famous proposition of the golden rule. Not Jesus' golden rule, uh, but the golden rule of this world. He who has the gold rules. And so when we see uh, things like the World Economic Foundation and, uh, and uh, other entities uh, using uh, the idea of, uh, of uh, commercial and economic control uh, to bring in, uh, you know, again, dominating uh, governmental uh, policies and so forth, we see, in a sense, the um, underpinnings, if you will, the setting of the stage for this last day's world economic system. So that's really what the Bible has to say about that. There is a lot of foreshadowing, obviously, of this final culmination. But uh, it's funny, when it comes to the sins of man, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Solomon was really right. There's nothing new under the sun. The same things, the same rebellious spirit that was at Babel, that uh, basically God said this, and man said, well, we'll see about that, uh, is going to rise and dominate again in the last days. Yeah, and that's essentially what's being judged. With the working assumption that you've read the first 65 books, the 66th book makes right. a callback to the first time Babel or Babylon is used, and that is in the theme of mankind's rebellion against God. And with this final plague, the seventh bowl judgment, Babylon in this context is mentioned for the first time, but the implications of her outside of Revelation can be alluded to in the fourth kingdom of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, yeah. as well as several others in the book of Isaiah, where it predicts basically Babylon's ultimate fall around 250 years before it had even become a significant figure on the world scene in that day. So note the point. When we're talking about these issues, a lot of prophecy is, of course, going to require a lot of information, and the interpretations require the explanation of the most data. That's usually how we approach these things. Right. And consistently, there are people who have said, oh, Mystery Babylon, that's revived Rome. Uh, some people with a bone to pick have said, oh, it's the Roman Catholic Church. Other people, like we mentioned, that we believe has the most merit, say it's a culmination of a religious and an economic system that will appear in the last days, where geographically it fits or the identity thereof 
as far as uh, on our maps. We aren't told, so we won't tell. But if on the other hand, we do know there is a theme throughout the Bible of these things, that's where we'd find it elsewhere, the most significant of which would be Daniel 7, that fourth beast with teeth of uh, and claws of iron that tears everything apart and rips everything asunder. Right. He uh, didn't know what to describe it as, but it was scary. Yeah, unlike any other beast. Hey, uh, another, uh, speaking on uh, measures of prophecy, just wanted to get this in real quick because some people have uh, been uh, been uh, asking us about this. Uh, the uh, visit of uh, President Joe Biden to Israel kicked off today uh, to uh, some mixed reviews, uh, different pictures that are being shown of uh, the arrival and some uh, problems uh, that took place uh, at uh, the greeting ceremony for him. But uh, the most important thing that we want to uh, remind you all of is uh, in this particular visit, uh, the, uh, I guess, elephant in the living room, if you will, that nobody wants to talk about regarding all of this, uh, but Israel wants to talk about, and certainly Saudi Arabia wants to talk about, is the fact, as we mentioned earlier uh, this week on the broadcast, Iran is now at 60% enrichment on uh, the uranium. That is enough, by the way, to build a uh, small-scale nuclear bomb. Now, maybe that's a contradiction in terms, uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is they do have that uh, level of uranium. If they continue enriching to 90%, then they can make some bombs that would uh, really uh, be comparable to uh, the nuclear arsenals that are contained in, say, Britain or France or things along this line. Uh, they are moving in that direction. Once they get to 60%, we mentioned once they get to 20%, it's very easy to enrich up to 90%. Uh, they are literally days away from achieving that kind of uh, capacity. Well, uh, in the Jerusalem Post today, uh, the uh, main uh, concern of uh, Israel uh, is summed up in this headline, despite Israel's efforts, Biden's visit won't bring snapback sanctions on Iran. Washington's strategy seems to be to tolerate Iran, continuing to enrich uranium to 60% for more potential bombs, with the hope that Khomeini doesn't kick out the International Atomic Energy Agency entirely. Well, that is, again, uh, wishful thinking on the, uh, uh, the ultimate degree. Uh, in fact, uh, it's amazing. France is now threatening to uh, impose a deadline uh, for the return of sanctions on the Islamic Republic uh, of early August. Uh, in fact, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency's deadline to fully restore its nuclear inspector surveillance cameras or risk causing a fatal blow to the nuclear deal, guess what, it already passed on July 8th. And uh, what Iran has done is essentially they, uh, uh, I don't know if they put spray paint on them or covered them up or just took them out. But there were uh, cameras that were placed to be able to monitor Iran's uh, nuclear activities in their underground facilities like at Fordo and, and others. Oh, by uh, the way, if you're planning a home invasions, spray painting cameras doesn't work. Yeah. Continue. Okay. Well, <laughs> anyway. Uh, Don't ask how I know that. So uh, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was quoted as saying, we've reunited our partners to ensure that it's Iran, not the United States that is isolated until it returns the nuclear deal. And the frequency of Iranian-sponsored attacks against our forces in Iraq and Syria has dropped dramatically. So the strategy appears to be isolation, but no specifics about how and when 
that will get Iran Supreme Leader, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, to back down from the nuclear threshold, on which he's basically standing right now. Uh, and and we, we've mentioned here on the broadcast, and I'll just try to keep this as condensed as possible. We'll deal more with this, obviously, as uh, events unfold on Friday. But uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, our State Department has consistently dealt with Iran like they were, well, I guess, uh, dealing out of a, the, the cards of a Western power. Uh, they failed to take into account the fanatical devotion that the Ayatollah, note his title, not prime minister, but Ayatollah Khomeini has to 12er uh, Islamic uh, eschatology. And what we mean by that is that they believe in the coming of the 12th Imam out of uh, seclusion. He's supposed to be hiding in a, a sacred well in the city of Qum, and uh, he will come forth and he will lead uh, Iran and uh, the forces of Islam uh, to victory when the world is in the midst of a global conflagration. And so uh, much you know, invested in this is Iran's uh, policy of making monkey business and creating uh, turmoil and instability around the world. Why are they doing that? They believe it's their way to bring forth their end times and their last days Islamic victory. Uh, our State Department doesn't take that kind of thinking into account. They think uh, the Iranians are judging things based upon uh, what uh, their policy is going to do to their economy or how they're going to be felt and, and dealt with on uh, the world scene or whether they're going to be invited to the latest uh, conference at Davos, Switzerland or not. Uh, I'm here to tell you, and Sean, you can verify this, uh, the Shiite uh, Islamic fanatics running the Iranian government have no interest whatsoever in those things not at all what is their main interest their main interest is ultimately where they view the hereafter ultimately leading them and because their religion's founder muhammad made a promise to those who not only would fight and die in jihad that is at the battle of Badr, those who fight in allah's way who are slain and are uh, who slay and are slain according to surah 9 chapter 111 they would be guaranteed paradise now that's a uh, big ticket item as far as Islam is concerned, because apart from that, you have no assurance of salvation. Whereas we're, we are saved by the grace of God and the power of God alone, every single Muslim has essentially that uh, emperor's new groove cronk scenario, where you've got an angel on one shoulder and a demon on another, gathering your baraka and uh, recording, documenting your sins, your wickedness. And those will all ultimately be measured against you, like ancient paganism, on Judgment Day. And so in order to to offset this if they are living the sort of lives or coming from the sort of lifestyles that uh, maybe weren't as devout as they ought to be. They start to maybe take their religion a bit more seriously in life and have too much regrets. The demons got uh, red on their ledger, so to speak. This is where radicalization generally takes place. Now, there are, of course, people who've been doing this their entire lives, like the representatives of the Iranian government. And so if we see individuals who are motivated by this, they not only see themselves as worthy candidates of pursuing the cause, right. which their founder, Muhammad, made the statement when he was asked by one of the rightly guided caliphs, show me a deed which equals jihad in its worthwhileness in this life, paraphrasing. He says, I find no such deed. That is coming from the mouths of their perfect man, their founder. It would yep. be like Jesus to us. And what's interesting about this as well is when addressing further conquest, a concern, a hadith, a tradition was... Uh, I guess, inquired in the use of catapults in some of these battles. Since there were Muslims in the city and you can't actually control how the rock falls, 
Uh, they, Collateral damage, if you yeah, will. They yeah, they uh, asked, well, what happens to the Muslims that weren't fighting but uh, ended up dying as a result of our actions? And by the way, this is the motivation and justification for suicide bombings, which still have implications today, as I'm sure you're well aware. He said that those who die in the way of jihad, as well as on the way of jihad, are both given the same reward. So from the perspective of the Iranian government, they're not only doing themselves a favor by risking total annihilation and nuclear retaliation, but also more significantly doing their entire nation a favor by getting them also killed as a result of their efforts in pursuing jihad. Beliefs have consequences, and that's why missionary so efforts true. Yeah. to the Muslim community are all the more needed now than ever. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, tying this back into Biden's visit uh, to uh, Israel, uh, in the Jerusalem Post, the uh, article, the analysis on the visit and its impact on the uh, so-called uh, joint plan of action, the uh, Iran nuclear deal, is that uh, if uh, our government continues just to say, well, we're going to give this some time and see how it all shakes out. Uh, well, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, the article says, what is to stop Iran from agreeing to return to the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in another month or two and claiming it's ready to give up all of its enriched uranium back to 2015 nuclear limits, while in reality it will only give up some and has hidden significant qualities while the IAEA was blind. And well, note that Muhammad also is noted as saying war is deception. That is the shortest and most concise hadith in the whole collection. They are not above line to achieve their military goals. So the International Atomic Energy Agency warned of this potential situation way back on June 9th. Uh, so the end of the article is really interesting. It says if the Biden strategy was to block this scenario, his visit to Israel could be used to announce a U.N. Security Council referral and a deadline like France suggested of a few weeks. If Iran violates the deadline, full global snapback sanctions could be invoked like they were under the Trump administration. That, according to the article, would be teeth. Instead, it appears that Washington is months, if not more, away from making any concrete deadlines or threats. If the real strategy right now seems to be to tolerate Iran continuing to enrich uranium to 60% for more potential bombs, as well as tolerate the IAEA's potential blindness, with the hope that Khomeini refrains from publicly jumping to 90% weaponized enrichment and kicking the IAEA out from the country entirely. Well, you know, this is a losing strategy. Israel knows this, as we've mentioned before, uh, the fact that Israel has a caretaker prime minister with no real military experience in place right now. It's a great opportunity for Iran to make that kind of jump. All this to say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, because Israel, in spite of being in a disadvantageous position leadership-wise, does have enough people uh, in the IDF and the IAF who have a uh, great background in doing these sort of things uh, to uh, launch a preemptive strike against uh, the Iranian nuclear facilities. If that happens, understand something, the Middle East is going to be one large war zone because of the Iranian proxies, uh, terrorist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthi rebels are going to be uh, turned loose. The Iranian, Iranian Republican Guard units will uh, have no restraint whatsoever. Uh, the various uh, Iran favoring militias in Iraq, uh, as well as uh, the newly instituted Taliban in Afghanistan, 
will probably all get involved in a regional war. Russia will probably get involved as well because uh, it has also been outed by the Biden administration that uh, Iran has been helping Russia with their drone program uh, in terms of supplying drones for the Ukrainian conflict. So what we're looking at is the possibility of a regional war. And if you think, well, that's just on the other side of the world, that's not really going to affect me. First of all, practically, it will. Do you like paying uh, almost uh, five bucks a gallon for gas? If something like this happens, get ready for almost seven to 10 uh, because uh, the uh, oil imports from the Middle East are going to be cut off in a New York minute. Uh, the other thing that, uh, that we're going to see in the economic fallout of that is, uh, you know, I guess uh, one of the most tremendous birth pains that we've seen leading up to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew 24 says to look for these things increasing in frequency and intensity. Now, uh, will Iran step back from the brink? Uh, will uh, wiser heads prevail? And uh, sanctions be restored against Iran on such a crippling nature that it makes uh, acting on these apocalyptic dreams of theirs uh, something they're going to have to put on the back burner. Let's hope that uh, that happens. I'm not optimistic that it's going to happen, given the wrongheadedness of virtually every administration we've had in understanding the Iranian threat. But uh, Israel understands. And uh, boy, you know, as uh, we put up on our uh, Twitter feed, and you can follow us on Twitter at Scott Richards at uh, AR4H on uh, Twitter.com. But uh, boy, there's a really uh, wonderful uh, psalm that uh, I've certainly been praying through uh, when I've been thinking about uh, what's going on with Israel and what's happening over there. And uh, perhaps you might as well, if you want to know how to pray. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you shall not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So great thing to pray for the people of Israel and to remember that um, the Lord God who watches out for them never takes a break. He doesn't take a siesta. He doesn't take a power nap. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's going to take care of his people, Israel. All right. Uh, and another follow-up question from the previous one. In regards to the common portrayals of Satan as this half uh, goat with the bifurcated tail and carrying a hay fork, as uh, <laughs> Everett McGill said, in, oh, brother, where art thou? Um, the obvious, or was that one of the lesser imps? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the we, idea we is, again, with those lesser imps in mind, yeah. is how demons are portrayed and even named. They uh, mentioned others like Behemoth and so forth. Uh, well, I appreciate the uh, reference to pop culture. None of them are accurate. The only portrayal that we have of a demonic entity as having goat-like features originally started with the, I guess, misconstruing of a passage in Leviticus 16 with Azazel. Now, Azazel, if you're an X-Men fan, you're like, oh yeah, that, that guy, he had a pointy tail. Again, comics, not reality. Azazel yeah. literally just Don't means this. Don't get your theology from comic books, kids. Especially <laughs> X-Men, given yeah. the state they're in right now. Yeah. But uh, when we're talking about this, the Azazel, or literally the scapegoat, was literally just and only a sacrifice, a specific type of sacrifice that was offered on the Day of Atonement, where the sins of the nation would be put upon it and then sent into the wilderness never to return. Right. Now, it didn't mean that this goat suddenly became a demon, nor did it mean that this goat was offered 
separate to some other deity, although unfortunately some opposed Christian teachers try to claim that. The reason why we have these fanciful names like Behemoth and Payman and Azazel and others and attributed with these weird entities is because of what are called apocryphal Jewish sources, or what we like to call Jewish mysticism, referred today as the Kabbalah. Now, obviously, these traditions go back a long time, around 200 years before Christ, in some regards. Real fanciful tales about, uh, say, for instance, Solomon using his magic ring to control the demons to gather water in order to produce the mortar for the temple or interesting uh, hierarchical structures in hell and so forth. The problem is none of it's from anyone that the authors themselves regarded as actual sources from God. Thus, they would have no impact on their religious views. They were almost like fan fictions being written. Which is fine as long as you put it in the proper section in the library. Now, remember that when we're defining the differences between a religion and a culture. If a culture makes these portrayals, all well and good, I'm a fan of Captain America myself. But if, on the other hand, I'd say, so what battles did Captain America take place in in World War II, I suddenly have egg on my face because he's not real. That would be a misconstruing of fiction and history. The same is true if I misconstrue mysticism, self-acclaimed fiction, and religious history, religious claims. Again, you don't have to believe in God speaking to the atheists or skeptics out there. You just have to make sure you're representing the religion you're talking about properly. It it would be like someone uh, wanting to do a Bible study based upon the shack, for instance. Yeah, definitely don't recommend that. As far as the name demons we have in the Bible, one for certain, maybe two, and I'll give a brief reason why. The first, of course, he was originally referred to as Lucifer, which means son of the morning. We now know him as accuser, adversary, or Satan, Diabolos in Latin. And this name and characteristic of this demon, this adversary, that's again what that means, is a spiritual entity by that name and with that conscious identity. We've had questions where people ask, uh, is it a salvation issue to believe in a literal Satan or not? And I'd say that'd be weird if you didn't, because the Bible's pretty plain about it. I was asked that as a pop question by uh, some border guards in Jordan. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> but uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't think they were going to let me out. He asked me, honest and good, they, they asked me, uh, who is the deity in Book of Job? The, the and, 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 and I said, um, well, there's the Lord, obviously. No, 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 two deities. Who is the other deity? I said, you mean Satan? Yeah, yes, yes, Satan, Satan. Uh, what does Satan mean? Now, you have to understand this guy's like, uh, squinting at me, giving me crook eye like you wouldn't believe, and he has two guards behind him with AK-47s. Oh, they who, had M4s. Who were, were also uh, staring at me. Uh, and uh, I said, well, it means uh, adversary or accuser. And he says, yes, yes, you may go. Anyway, he <laughs> so, just wanted so, to make sure we were actually pastors, not well, spies. But. Well, I, I think he also got a kick out of, he was probably bored, I think he got a kick out of uh, messing with us. So, But I digress. But that being said, <laughs> um, the references again in the text in Scripture, again, the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, identified as Satan in Revelation 12. We can also note in Job chapters 1 through 2, Satan is made very clear as that adversary. You can also see Zechariah 4 and many others. But uh, another uh, misconstruing people make is Beelzebub, who is mentioned also in the Gospels as well, that literally means Lord of Flies, and Belial, which means worthless one. Now, these aren't different 
demonic entities. They're always used in congruation or a comparison to Satan. And the reason why is because when Belial is brought up, at least most often, it's actually in the Psalms and in the Proverbs translated as someone who is wicked. To describe worthless, some, yeah. yeah. To st- describe someone as wicked, that literally in our English would usually come, maybe five times out of ten, as son of Belial. Uh, you can say SOB in other contexts, but that's what the Jews were referring to in these texts. Yeah. Now, now you, you didn't want to be called that. Yeah, them was that, fighting words. Yeah, so. that was a nickname for Satan. There's no distinction made within the text we actually have unless you go to mystical or apocryphal sources. Then when we get to the New Testament, there's another character that we might make a comparison and a distinction to between Satan and others that it's one and the same, and that is the character introduced in Revelation chapter 9, Abaddon, which literally means destroyer. He's called Apollyon in Greek. John names this specific entity as the angel of the bottomless pit, the abyss through which the plague that's unleashed on the earth during the tribulation will be led by. And what's interesting about this entity is that it notes he comes from the abyss. He was introduced as a result of the opening of the abyss. Lucifer, or Satan, is still in heaven until the cap of Revelation chapter 12. And when he's cast out of heaven, he's bound to the earth, not the abyss. So unless we really mess with some timelines here and say that Satan, at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the millennium, has been thrown into the bottomless pit, and now before the halfway point of the tribulation, suddenly he's coming out of it, we're not uh, pulling any Avengers endgame shenanigans here. Satan's not a time traveler. So make sure that that's kept clear, the arguments on both sides, they would say, well, John 10.10 says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, Satan as a destroyer would, of course, be appropriately named this. Yes, but again, he's not the only fallen angel. There's a distinction in personage between that and the entity described in Revelation 9. That would be the only other angel that we, or fallen angel, that we have by name. The only named righteous angels that we have in the Bible, likewise, only number two. That is Michael, who's name means who is like God, and Gabriel, whose name means strength of God. So when we're talking about these things, recognize, first of all, that the Bible's goal isn't to give us an insight into the spiritual realm. It does from time to time, but the focus and goal is always who God is and how we can have a relationship with him. If you get involved in all of these rabbit trails, you either end up weird or missing the point. We don't want to be either. Yeah. Here's a question from Isaiah, who wants to know, how will people pay for things during the millennial kingdom uh, under a true theocracy? That is, when God rules. Is it possible we'll use cubits and talents again? Thank you. Well, thank you for the question, Isaiah. People, when they want to know about this, usually go to Isaiah 55. Let me read it and then, again, cut off the point where it's relevant. But if you read the whole chapter, there's no real mention of this having a place or a description of the end times. It's describing God's invitation for fellowship with him again. Let me read it. Right. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here. Let me know if this sounds familiar, by the way. And your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And on he goes from there. So in describing this renewed relationship with God, he first makes a point in saying everything good, the, the, the expensive stuff, right? 
right. you can receive for free. Right. But why do you instead turn to things, you spend your money exorbitantly on things that don't even fill you up, the things that aren't even that worthwhile, like bread and water? Jeremiah makes the same point in the early days of his ministry when he describes their idolatry as broken cisterns that hold no water, basically water wells that they would turn to that collect rainwater, something we're in desperate need of here in Arizona. But the point being made is still there. Uh, when we ask the kind of money and measurement system of the millennial kingdom, a lot of people look to, say, for instance, how Ezekiel was instructed to measure aspects of the thousand-year reign that we see in Ezekiel 40 and 40 onwards. But what's concerning about that interpretation is that Ezekiel was being addressed who is familiar with that measurement system. It doesn't mean that that will be implemented at that time. It just means he was being addressed to what he was familiar with and where he was at. It's like me as an American being told, uh, how many kilometers is that? I'm an American. We use miles here. Yeah. That the Romans Unless you invent- run 10Ks and then you... Yeah, yeah, that the Romans invented, but that's another point. Um, what we know about the Millennial Kingdom is given to us in most detail in Revelation 20. That is, Jesus is there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the best part. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that's really where I'd leave it. Uh, there's a lot we aren't told about uh, the Millennial King. There's some things that we are told, some interesting details, like uh, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles is going to be considered a mandatory feast, and representatives from every nation will be expected to be there, or it's going to affect their weather. Yeah. Book of Zechariah 14 says that. Uh, the most important thing about the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ, I think, is in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, now here's what I love, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So whatever economic system is set up, it's going to be perfectly righteous. It's going to be perfectly just. Nobody's going to be ripped off. Nobody's going to be exploited. Uh, There's not going to be any, uh, you know, uh, haves and have-nots. The Lord himself is going to make sure that uh, we have a perfect system politically. Uh, It's going to be a perfect system spiritually and even a perfect system uh, uh, economically. All right. Let us know if that helps you. A uh, question from Nina. We addressed this off screen yesterday, but it seems there's still some need for clarification. What was Paul saying in 1 Corinthians, I believe you're referring to chapter 4, regarding judging, when Paul said, do not judge before the time, she's heard that some pastors say, Paul is saying, don't touch the pastor, the whole prosperity gospel nonsense of do not lay your hand against God's anointed, which is taking, again, passages from the Old Testament out of context. Well, let me read it. It it says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden
hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise shall come from God. Now, praise for what? He mentioned just in the chapter, their ministry to God and faithfulness therein. What in the immediate prior chapter did Paul just finish talking about them regarding? They're saying, well, we follow Paul. We follow Apollos. We follow Cephas. We follow Christ. Verse 6 goes on to say that. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another. For who makes you differ from from one another, and what do you have that you didn't receive? Now, if indeed you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Uh, you know, the, the Corinthians kind of had this ego problem. Uh, Paul and Apollos were going through all these persecutions. Uh, the Corinthians weren't. And they said, well, you know, if the Paul and Apollos were as cool as we are, then they wouldn't have all these problems. And what Paul is saying is, you're not seeing things clearly. You're not seeing things through God's eyes. And, you know, there were also others that would have their, their favorite spiritual superhero, and they would uh, break down uh, as far as personality cults and things like that. Well, we're of Paul, and we're of Apollos, and we alone are of Christ, and we're of Peter over here. Uh, and uh, Paul indicts it by saying, when you act like that, you're in the flesh. You're acting like mere men. Uh, that's not how we behave as believers with one another. We serve one Lord. Uh, He's the one to whom we owe our allegiance, and from him, we're going to receive the final evaluation of what our ministry was really all about, whether it was sincere or whether it was phony, whether it was fruitful in God's eyes, whether it was not, whether we invest in the right things, whether we didn't. So, you know, where the touch-not-God's-anointed crew will take this and kind of twist it around is, uh, you know, I, I remember this was really big uh, during the TV evangelist scandals and, and in the uh, 80s and so forth, that uh, these uh, uh, TV broadcasters, these televangelists, uh, whenever someone would start looking into, say, some of the monkey business that was going on, uh, they'd say, touch not God's anointed and do his prophets no harm. Well, they're taking that psalm completely out of context, Nina, because uh, basically what that was referring to was God protecting the people of Israel in their wilderness wandering. That's what that was about. It didn't mean, um, you know, if you're really not sure that things are in the up and up in some ministry you're supporting, uh, you should ask them to see their, you know, P&L, their profit and loss statements and where things are going. That There's nothing wrong with that. Well, and plus, let's even take their claim at face value. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as your proof text to say, and here's the application, if I'm accused of sin, that's not allowed because the pastor, and no one in church for that matter, but especially the pastor, doesn't get called out on sin in church. If you go to 1 Corinthians 4, I'd assume you'd continue to 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul does what exactly? He addresses someone in the church for sin and tells them that he's going to pray yeah. that their flesh be handed over to Satan, that their soul may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah. So in a, vo- in a passage used out of context to avoid correction, it's immediately followed by and preceded by passages where they're being corrected. Yeah, and, and you know we really have to be careful, because I think with good intentions, some people will look at these passages and say, hey, you know, my judge is God. And I would be the first one to agree with that 100%. Yes, your judge is God. And unfortunately, when they say things like that, what that means is uh, if anyone 
has anything to say about maybe a bad attitude they have or about uh, maybe cruel and cutting words they've used or or maybe uh, some moral indiscretions that might be going on they'll say hey hey you you can't talk to me about that my uh, my judge is god well okay uh what do we do then with passages like Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 that talk about if you, your brother sins against you, you go to him privately. If he hears you, you won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, you come with two or more so that everything can be established by two or three witnesses. And if he hears you, you won your brother. If he won't listen to you then, then you bring it to the church. If he doesn't bring it to listen to the church, then he's to be like a Gentile or tax collector. To use this as some kind of deflector shield uh, for lack of accountability in our lives uh, before the Lord, uh, I, I think is uh, something that should really set off, Nina, uh, the, the old discernometer, as we call it. If someone says no one has the right to second guess or uh, ask the pastor about something that is going on, um, you know, I, I think they've missed it. You know, for instance, I'll just personalize this. Uh, you know, back in the early 90s, I went through a very painful divorce. And uh, again, uh, this was done uh, with full biblical counsel. Chuck Smith walked me through this process uh, and so on. But uh, different people hear different things about it. And uh, when, uh, especially when the church first got going, there would be people saying, oh man, you know, I just, uh, you know, heard from some people over here, this and this and this, um, you know, I heard you, you'd been divorced. And, and uh, one of uh, the first questions I would ask them would be, okay, well, why do you want to know? And if it's just, you know, a, a little uh, ear tingling gossip, you know, that they want to pass along, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was under any obligation whatsoever to talk about the circumstances of the divorce that I went through. But if I could see if it was a real issue in the heart of a person, you know, for instance, if uh, they wouldn't feel comfortable under the spiritual leadership of our church until they knew those details, then by all means, I would share those details. I would also direct them to other people who could also share those details with them, uh, even saying, you know, if you've got an issue about all of this, you know, give Chuck Smith a call and he'll be happy to uh, talk to you about uh, these sort of things. And he was available to do just that at certain circumstances. So I would say, speaking as a pastor and speaking, you know, talk about a controversial subject uh, going through a divorce, uh, there were people that would say, you know, well, you know, I hear this and this and this. And if I just said, touch not God's anointed and do his holy ones no harm, uh, first of all, that's not a scriptural attitude to have. Uh, secondly, all that would do is generate, I think, in the hearts of the people who are asking the question, the, hmm, methinks he doth protest too much or too uh, reaction. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's just make sure, Nina, that uh, when someone throws that sort of stuff out, first of all, it's in context. It was just referring to the people of Israel being um, attacked by the various nations and tribes that they went through and encountered in the wilderness. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul said, yeah, ultimately, uh, we are going to be judged by God, but uh, that's a uh, little comfort, especially when you understand what James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, let not many of you become teachers, my beloved brethren, for as such you'll incur a stricter judgment. And God is going to hold us accountable for how we uh, represented his truth to his flock. All right. Um, we received this question by phone. The individual wanted to know about our position regarding the prosperity gospel, and this was his handling of it, that rich people aren't going to heaven, that the 
poor are the ones who the kingdom of God belongs to. Now, obviously, let's clarify the prosperity gospel, then maybe uh, clarify a few details about that conclusion. Yeah. So does God want you, this is what we mean by prosperity gospel, to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, that if you have enough faith, and if you have faith in your faith, that you won't be sick, that you won't be impoverished, that nothing bad will happen to you in this life, ergo, if something bad happens to you in this life, you just need to exercise faith, and if you don't have enough faith, well, our system can't be wrong, so you must be the problem. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary of it. Actually. What's our conclusion about it, though? <laughs> that, is that, that is uh, completely non-biblical. Uh, and, and this is what we say, you know, when people say, does God want you to be wealthy? Does God want you to be healthy? Uh, does God uh, want you to be the head, not the tail, lender, and not the borrower? Possibly if these things are going to lead you to be conformed in your character, the image and likeness of Jesus. What is God's purpose for our lives? Well, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, and verse 28, famous passage, says that God works all things together for good for those who love him were called according to his purpose. Well, what's God's purpose? To make us comfortable? No. He says, for those whom he foreknew, these he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's goal in the Christian life isn't to make us comfortable, it's to make us like Christ in our character. Now, God uses a lot of tools in his toolbox to accomplish that, doesn't he? He can use trials and he can use treasures. He can use good times, he can use bad times. He can use times where uh, we are exalted and he can use times when we are humbled, but he uses all of them to accomplish not what we might want to get from God. That is uh, breaking through to the blessed life and uh, being able to write your own ticket with God. And if uh, you're not uh, flying in a 737 jet, uh, there's something wrong with your faith. Uh, no, um, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, God will use all those things uh, to accomplish as well. Uh, it was interesting on our Twitter feed, uh, a fellow uh, raised a question that a prosperity uh, gospel uh, proponent said that uh, the reason that uh, the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was because he had a defective or a lack of faith. Unless you read the passage. And, and you know, my response to that was, uh, you know, I don't think Paul's faith was defective or lacking. In fact, I love Paul's faith because the one thing I've, under, I've come to understand, especially over the last few years going through the bout of cancer and all that stuff, is that God uh, is uh, far more likely to cause our faith to grow, not when that faith produces relief from suffering, but when that faith is something that sees us through a time of suffering. That's when we really grow in Christ-likeness, and Jesus set the example for that. If you don't really want to be like Jesus in your character, you probably uh, shouldn't uh, commit yourself to following Christ. But if you fall in love with Jesus, and that's what a relationship with him is all about, uh, you're going to want to be like him in your character. So um, all the trials and tribulations, that's why Paul could say in these things, I rejoice. I even rejoice in my weakness, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm more Christ-like when I'm weak and having to depend on God than when I'm strong and maybe more inclined to wander. All right, and then the conclusion is, I guess, reactionary. If the rich are emphasized in a false teaching to be the ones to whom the kingdom of God applies, then do I overemphasize what Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, if I were to take that and say, well, if the poor 
are the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs to, then the rich don't go to the kingdom of heaven. Be careful with that because really there are with that. because there are rich examples of rich people in scripture who had just as much legitimate relationship with God as the latest pauper. I could name four right off the bat, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Lydia. I could also mention Priscilla and Aquila and who founded a church in their home were decidedly wealthy people. We can also note Mary the mother of John Mark who had a large home where people met. Yeah, yeah. and plenty of other people, but note these points. It's not what you have. Abraham was pretty well off, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's what you do with it, the attitude you bring to it. So note these points. If we're going to apply Jesus' words in a way where it directly conflicts with Scripture and throws other people inspired by the Holy Spirit under the bus, I got a problem. But if, on the other hand, I note James's clarification, let those who are rich in this life not repent, but be careful because wealth implies many trials. Yeah, that's uh, and, the point. He you makes. know, I, I love what First uh, Timothy chapter six and verse seventeen says: Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. They may lay hold on eternal life. There's nothing uh, essentially ennobling about being poor, uh, because uh, the one thing I've discovered about poor people is that they will probably struggle with issues like envy, uh, quite a bit. They might even fall into the trap of materialism. Uh, you know, there was an old saying that uh, the poor have one great advantage over the rich and that the poor still believe money can solve their problems. Uh, the rich know more money, more problems. That's basically how it works. Uh, rich people, on the other hand, do fall into a temptation and a snare because sometimes we believe that the goal of life is to get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Uh, you know, if I, I'm so paralyzed by fear of losing what I have, that I can't use it to bless other people, then I've missed the mark. You see, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all kinds of evil. It's falling in love with it. And you can be poor and love money and want to have more of it, or you can be rich and love money and you know be so tight uh, of a penny pincher you make Lincoln scream. Uh, either way, you're not honoring the Lord. And note as well, the we'll finish up with this, the argument that, well, Jesus said it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It would be like a camel going to the eye of the needle. Remember what led into that conversation? A rich young ruler came to Jesus wanting to be his disciple, right. but when pressed on it, he loved his riches more than his desire to be an apostle and left. Yeah. Jesus then followed through on that with his followers by saying what? It is easier for a rich man to go to heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He doesn't say it's impossible, but note the point that he then goes on to make. Who then can go to heaven? He said, with man Man. it is impossible, but with God all things are possible, even the rich, even us going to heaven. That was his point. Hey, thanks so much for being with us on this edition of A Reason for Hope. We're going to be uh, going through Revelation 17, the setup for the return uh, of Jesus. Revelation 16 tonight. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.